Amen. Amen. Good morning, everybody. <laughs> Welcome to North River. So glad to be with you today. And um, uh, if this is your first time, we just want to extend a greeting to you. We're glad that you're with us. I wonder how many of us relate to the character of Tommy in that drama that we just watched. And we like the idea of being God's masterpiece, but maybe something got in the way of becoming what God has intended for us. Maybe we started off with good intentions, but after a while, maybe the novelty just kind of wore off. Maybe some priorities became more important in our life. Or perhaps guilt or shame or fear made us wonder if we could ever be accepted by God. So we've kept him at a distance. Maybe like Tommy, we try to control the work, of God, the, the work that God wants to do in our life. Or the direction that God wants to lead us in. We, we control that because God's way might be just a little bit more than we're comfortable with. Christian comedian John Chris struggles with that idea all the time. In fact, he wrote this week, he said, I want to be more like Jesus in every way, but eating fish for breakfast is where I draw the line. <laughs> or is it possible that you have settled simply with being, a nominal, uh, being nominally connected to God in name only? You say you follow God, but nothing about you resembles an authentic walk with God. What would happen if, like Tommy, we fully allowed God to create us into his masterpiece? What would you need to surrender? And what would be the result? We're currently working through a series on the book of Colossians, and it's called Getting Clear on Jesus. And one of the things that we're learning along the way is that Jesus is enough for us. We don't need anything else but Jesus in our life. Today we're working, looking at uh, chapter th the first, verse, first 11 verses of chapter 3, and I'd like to read those for you this morning. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Sit your minds on the things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, Rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is all. Becoming God's masterpiece requires two key elements that we're going to look at this morning. The first is focus, and the other one is change. First, we'll look at focus. When we're talking about becoming God's masterpiece, 
focus is not about trying harder. It's not about exerting more grit or having more determination. Focus has to do with whom we are setting our life around. Let me throw up verses 1 through 3 again. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. See, when we focus on Jesus, we seek the things that are above. Notice the Apostle Paul's declaration, you have been raised with Christ. This reveals a change in our status. A transaction has taken place. This is not something we are doing, but it's something that's already been done. The transaction is being united with Christ in his death and in his resurrection. And it's through Jesus that our debt of sin has been canceled. And through him, we have eternity. We have entered into God's family. But just as Jesus was not defeated by death, but raised to life, so too are we in Christ. Now, this is not something that we could ever do on our own. We need God's grace in order to complete this transaction. Now, the implication of this transaction is that we will not stay as we are or where we are. In Christ, the radical transformation from death to life is just the start. We have the rest of our life to start living for eternity. How do we do that? Look at what Paul says next. He says, set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Our focus is not only on who Jesus is, but where Jesus is. When we focus on Jesus, we seek the things that are above. Jesus is not dead in the grave. He's alive and he's and united with God at the throne of heaven and earth. Paul says we should set our heart and our focus there. The literal translation for set your hearts is to seek, meaning to search for, to desire, to require, to demand. So by seeking the things that are above where Christ is, we are focusing and prioritizing Christ who is in heaven. Now, this is not just some cosmic or celestial idea. There are three real things that happen when we set our focus on heaven. First, it heightens our reverence for Jesus. Do you ever notice when somebody important's in the room or somebody that we want to hang out with, spend time with, it causes us to sit up a little bit more to look up and look like we're more alert. When I was a kid, I worked at a local gas station here on the South Shore, and I remember one day, uh, I was at the, re at the cash register, and there's a couple other people, other employees I was working with, and they're in the back. They weren't doing anything wrong, but we were just kind of like very lackadaisical in what we're doing. And I'm behind the register, and all of a sudden, the owner of the gas station comes walking, walking up towards the curb and almost at the door. And I remember at that moment, as I saw him, I was like, oh, great, people are in the back. We better get into action. So I yell out, hey, guys, Leo's here. <laughs> he heard me through the glass. 
So he walks in, he opens the door, and he's like, what? What did I just hear? What did you just say? Let me tell you, that guy saw more work in me in that 10 minutes that he was in that room <laughs> than ever. <laughs> Why? Because he was there. My daughters, Riley and Peyton, they do the same thing. I pick up Riley after uh, Peyton after school, and we'll get in the car, and she'll be like, hey, Dad, are you going back to work today? And I'm like, oh, yeah, honey, I got to go back. She's like, oh, okay. And, you know, every day she's starting to ask that. And finally one day I asked her, I was like, Peyton, why do you keep asking me that question? I'm like, are you, like, sad that I'm going back to work? She's like, yeah, I'm really sad that I'm going back to work. That's not the truth. <laughs> she wants to raid the refrigerator when I'm not home. <laughs> and if I'm not home, she can eat whatever she won't. <laughs> but when I'm there, <laughs> it's a different story. Dad's in the house. <laughs> well, that's kind of the same way that this... This idea of setting our sights, our focus on heaven, is that it, it, it builds our reverence. It, it, it gets us focused on who Jesus is and how we're supposed to be. It's not out of fear, but it's out of reverence of who God is. Second thing that happens when we seek heaven is that we won't get confused between Christ and the principles of this world. One of the challenges that the Colossians were wrestling with was the false teaching of the Gnostics who believed that Jesus wasn't enough. And, uh, and something only they knew about and uh, needed to be added to Paul's message of the gospel. It was like a religious soup. A little bit of legalism, a little bit of astrology, a little bit of Eastern mysticism, and a little bit of Christianity all put into one. And the Gnostics believed that this would surely sure up one's standing with God. Now the problem is, is that as we've been learning in this series, is that all those other things don't sure up anything. Rather, it weakens our standing with God because we're no longer trusting that Jesus is enough when we buy into a false teaching like that. Think about the false teachings that we hear in our society today. All roads lead to heaven. I'm good enough. God helps those who help themselves. See, we don't just live in the reality of, uh, of, of, where we, of the here and now. As Christians, we are not a citizen of this world trying to get to heaven. We are citizens of heaven making our way through this world. And by seeking heaven, we are tapping into the navigational direction of God in order to be led through the ebb and flow of our life. We don't have to rely on the basic principles of this world to guide us. We are guided by the truth of God's word and we're led by his sovereign hand. One of the mantras that you often hear in our house is, choose attic friends, not basement friends. Now the idea behind this is to hang out, to choose friends who will build you up and support and challenge, rather than hang out with friends in the basement who will pull down or tear or lead you to make poor choices. When we seek heaven, Jesus is the ultimate attic friend. When we focus on Jesus, he's lifting us up as he is making us new. 
The third thing that happens when we seek heaven is that we learn kingdom values and priorities. Remember what Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount, the most famous sermon of all time? He said, seek first the kingdom of God. That word seek is the same word that we're seeing in Colossians 3. See, there are competing values the, and priorities that will constantly be fighting for our time and our talent and our treasure. Jesus must be the first in your life. Now, one of the best ways that we can seek after the things above is to spend time in God's presence. See, oftentimes we focus on God's presence, NTS, but what he wants is us to spend time in his presence. What does that often look like? Well, one of the first ways is we get to, in, we get to celebrate God in his presence in worship. When we come here and when we gather together, we're not just here fulfilling a religious obligation we have the freedom to know that God has set us free and we have the ability to worship because when we worship here, two or three are gathered, his presence is here and we get to be in that presence with him. I often look around and I see some of the, the worship hand expressions that people have in worship. In fact, people talk about the, the worship hand expressions. If you Google it sometime, you'll see a bunch of different hand expressions. I bought a few today that I thought I'd just share a little about how people engage in worship. A couple of them I made up, a couple of them that I, I found on the internet that I thought was pretty cool. For instance, uh, this one. I call this the husband. <laughs> this is the, my wife made me come and she told me there was free coffee after the service. <laughs> I call this one the teenager. I'm too cool for this. And I don't want anyone I see at school here to think that I'm into all this stuff. Check the text. <laughs> Any of these familiar? No? Maybe? Maybe so? How about the elbow flap? You're kind of into it. <laughs> you, start, you start moving around a little bit. <laughs> these progress a little bit. This is like the rookie move. You know, you can do this a little bit. All right, if you want to get into it a little bit more, you kind of carry the TV, right? <laughs> and if you like it a little bit more, you go to big screen, right? <laughs> Some of the intermediate poses, my fish was this big. <laughs> Hold my baby. Now, David, now David Code is notorious for this one. He's like, Mufasa. <laughs> <laughs> now, if you just turn your hands just this way a little bit, and you close your eyes, this is the Michael Jackson hanging his baby over the balcony. <laughs> we got the dueling light bulbs. <laughs> this one's Pastor Christie's favorite. She's like, heartburn. I just had a double quarter pounder with cheese at McDonald's and I hurt. <laughs> the village people, Rocky! <laughs> Touchdown! <laughs> now, I am not knocking on any of those. <laughs> You'll see me here all day, right? <laughs> Too cool. But what I'm po the point I'm getting at here is that it's okay to be in God's presence, and it's okay to express your adoration, your, your excitement, your passion, your energy. And that grows. 
Sometimes we do start here, and other times we get to here, and it's okay. It's an opportunity where we are in God's presence. Another way to be in God's presence is to be alone and spend time with God on your own each day. Spending time in, pre- in God's presence builds intimacy. And intimacy with Jesus is simply carving out time to be with him. It's that solitude in prayer and it's accountability. It's that interaction between Tommy and God where it's just those, just Tommy and God that we saw in that video. Where, he, where Tommy's able to be real and able to be honest and able to be free. Becoming like Jesus and knowing more uh, about what Jesus wants us, how he wants us to live, can't happen from just a 30-minute sermon on Sunday alone. We have to find time to be in his, in his presence. Dallas Willard says this, he says, Life in tune with God is actually nurtured by time spent alone. What's the enemy of the intimacy of Jesus? It's busyness, right? Busyness is the subtle, but very dangerous. But it's very dangerous because it dulls our desire for the kingdom. It dulls our dependence on God. In our world, busyness is a badge of honor. What do we do when we say that we're at, when people ask us how we're doing? What do we say? We say, oh man, I'm just, I'm really busy. I got a lot going on. Being busy communicates that we are someone of importance, that we are successful, and that we are needed. But here's the truth. When we are too busy, we are essentially saying, I don't need God in my life. And in this day and age where speed and results and appearances are the primary goal, we have to got, we've got to be careful to avoid busyness. It's just too costly. This is one area where in my own life where I'm constantly fighting to keep in check, to be able to identify and carve out time each day with God, not being too busy with all responsibilities and things and everything that just fills up the noise. One of the best examples that I've seen is, uh, in this is my, is my own wife, Jamie, in her own life. Some of you heard our story that a few years ago, about four or five years ago, uh, Jamie had lost her job and she was out of work for about six months. And I remember when that all started, when that all happened, I went into the mode of, what am I going to do? What are we going to do? You know, I start planning, I start pulling out sheets and, you know, kind of writing down a list of all the things that we have to do in order to protect ourselves, preserve ourselves. I'm wondering, do we have to sell the house? Do we have to sell the car? Do we have to sell the kids? I mean, I was asking all those questions, right? What was I going to do? And while I was trying to figure out what I was going to do, Jamie was figuring out what God was going to do. See, I watched Jamie over those six months, every morning, open up her Bible. Some days it was five minutes, other days it was 15, 20 minutes. But she would spend time with God. So she started her day asking, what is God going to do during this time? While I was over here trying to figure out what I was going to do. Guess who had the more power and strength in that moment? 
Not this dude. <laughs> but we all often get caught up in that idea of like, what do we have to do? What has to get done? And it's not like Jamie just sat back and was like, oh, I'll, just let, I'll let God figure it all out. I don't have to do anything. But it started by centering and allowing God to work in her heart before she started figuring out what to do, what to do next. When we focus on Jesus, we seek the things that are above. The second element on the path to becoming God's masterpiece is change. Now let me state a couple obvious things about change. Change, it's strange. We're more comfortable with what we know rather than exploring into the unknown of what we don't know, right? This is where the majority of people in society reside. It's where we get the whole idea of we've always done it this way, right? Because it's comfortable. We, we build it, we're, we're habitual people. We build a routine. We don't want to change. Now, for the minority, for those who embrace change and they think it's great, yeah, they love change until they're the ones that need the change. <laughs> John Maxwell, who's a leadership writer, says, the toughest person to lead is yourself. Henry Cloud says this, he says, until the pain of, cha- of not changing is worse than the change you need to make, you won't make that change, right? Not until the pain of, changing, of not changing is worse than the change you need. Now the point I'm making here is that the Christian journey is all about change. And as humans, we're not wired to handle change well. Go back to the drama that, uh, that we just saw a few minutes ago. Tommy wanted change, but he wanted to control it. He wanted God to chisel out what he wanted him to chisel out. He was more worried about his waistline than his heartline. He was nervous that he wouldn't look like himself after God was finished chiseling. Remember when God said, who do you see when you look into the mirror? And he tried to avoid God from doing the work by doing a lot of talking. Finally, God said to Tommy, most people would rather rather talk than do the work. The Bible has a name for this change. It's called transformation sanctification. And it's what sits right here in Colossians 3. It's no longer, it's the process of no longer living our old life, and it's living out our new life in Christ. We often, in spiritual formation, we call this the false self and the true self. The false self and the true self are basically the two ways that we live as humans in the world. The false self depends on our own strength and our own abilities and our own resources. Everything that comes from the belief that our deepest satisfaction comes from living life our way, not God's way. At its core, the false self is our sinful nature because it is is us living outside of who we were created to be. We have a perpetual need to preserve a false image of ourself, which is reflected in how we relate to the world. The false self often operates out of fear, 
and selfishness, desire, selfish desire, pride, blame, control, judgment. Because we're trying to protect that inner world of ourself, our soul. We don't want people to see what we're really about or what we're really like. The false self is extremely complex as it's intertwined with our sins and our habits and our patterns that we've developed over the years of our life. How we've learned to navigate through the world. It's even tied to our family origin. One of the triggers of the false self for me is that I can become incredibly competitive, which stems from being told as a kid, you do whatever you want to do in your life, just you better be the best. Now I know what that meant now that I heard it, but for many years that was a, a pressure, a compulsion of needing to be the best in whatever I did. Now, the true self is the opposite of the false self. It's your total self as you were created by God and as you're being redeemed in Christ. It's the image of God that you are. It's the unique face of God that has been set aside for eternity, uh, from eternity for you. In other words, your true self is God's masterpiece. As Christians, we have this new life in Christ. And that new life is a transformation from the old self, who we used to be, to the new self, who God has called us to be. And the true self is cultivated as we grow and we walk with God. That's the transformation that's happening in our life as we follow and walk with God. Now, the true self depends on God for everything. We have a choice. Will we operate our life from the false self, or will we operate from the true self? Well, how does that work? How do we operate in the true self? Well, we have to let God do some chiseling in our life. Here's what we read in verses 5 through 10. Paul says, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these, you used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. But now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these. Anger, rage, malice, and slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do you hear what Paul's saying here? Do you see what's happening He's saying, put to death your old, your false self. You have to put it to death. Paul's not, call, not, not just here calling for a couple of New Year's resolutions over the next couple years. Oh, I'll try to, try to be a little bit better. Paul is calling for a complete eradic eradication of the old self. It's the intentional focus on allowing God's Spirit to work in you and reign in you fully. A few months ago, we did a house project. Uh, some of you guys know I like to do DIY projects around my house. And one day, Jamie went out for a few hours, and I decided, yeah, I think I'll work on my fireplace. So when she came home, she saw this mess where I ripped out everything in front of the, over the fireplace. She thought it was going to be all done by the time she got home. And 
two weeks later, here we are. <laughs> We're still working on it. But one of the things happened when I opened up that wall. I opened up one board, I took out one board, and there was a nest of ants. Not just a few ants. I'm talking about the ball of ants where the queen, the queen ant, is sitting, ant is sitting inside. And I opened that thing up, and those things went scurrying everywhere. So I'm out getting the spray, and I'm squirting it. I got a vacuum. I'm sucking them all up, and I'm squirting, I'm squirting spray down into the vacuum so that they're ingesting it all. <laughs> I had to eradicate the ants that were living inside the wall. That's what I had to do. And that's the same way that happens in our own life. We have to learn to eradicate the things in our life, in our old self, our false self, that are not of God. We have to be willing to take them out, to put them to death. Paul here was talking in no general terms. He's very specific of the things of the false self. Sexuality, lust, our evil desires, the greed, the desire of wanting more, anger and rage, malice, slander, Filthy language. The idea here with filthy language, it's not just curse words. All the high school kids are like, whew. <laughs> it's worse. Filthy language is the abusive language that we use to hurt each other. God wants us to eradicate those things from our life. He wants us to live in the true self, to live as God's masterpiece. Now, God doesn't sit there and look at these things in our life and judge us, but He does call them what they are sin. And God handles that with grace and love and patience. The desire for us to, to, to help us to see that life is better without those things living as God's masterpiece than with those things. And he works with us to remove those things from our life. We wrestle with that tension of, well, that's a lot of stuff, and that's a lot of change, and is this something that happens overnight? Am I just instantly zapped, and God takes all this stuff out of my life? What happens if I slip up? The Christian journey is a marathon. It's not a race. The change happens gradual over time. But the change does happen the more that we focus, the more that we set our hearts on the things above, the more that we allow Jesus to make the changes and that we're, fr we're freely surrendering to him to let that happen. If we try to do all this change ourselves, if we try to eradicate these things from our life, we'd get frustrated, we'd give up, we'd throw in the towel, we'd say, I'm done. We don't have the strength to relieve those things from our life. Here's how this works. God does the work. We allow God to do the work. If there's anything that you hear today that you leave with, God does the work. But we have to allow God to do the work. That's the step of obedience. That's the transformational sanctification that Paul is talking about here.
The last thing that we see in this, in this passage this morning is that when we focus on Jesus, kingdom values are reflected in community. When we focus on Jesus, kingdom values are reflected in community. See, we might look at some of this stuff, and, we, and you might think, Todd, you're telling me that I have to set my, my heart, my, my focus on the things of heaven, meaning not here, and you want me to live in my new self, my true self, and not my old self? Am I just supposed to separate from everything in my life? Am I just supposed to not have anything to do with the world? And the answer is no. Why? Because... Jesus knew that the process of allowing him to do the work in our life is something that happens while we're in this life. We don't separate ourselves. It's in the, pro- it's in the world, it's in the life that we're living that God is doing the work. Here's what it says in Colossians 3.12. It says, Therefore, as God's chosen holy people and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you, and over all these virtues put on love, which binds them together in perfect unity. When I read that passage, one of the things that I see is kind of a little bit of a mess. There's a tension. We're not fully as God has wants, wants us to be, we're, but we're in progress. We're in process, and it's a little bit messy. See what it says to bear with each other and forgive one another? Because some of us are working on things that others are not. And that's totally okay. It doesn't mean we separate ourselves from the community. It means we engage in the community because we learn from each other in the process. As we learn to live our, our, new, our true self, that flows out and people experience it and learn it, and embrace it together. We learn to tolerate one another's idiosyncrasies. If anyone has a complaint against one another, be forgiving, just as the Lord forgave you, Colossians 3.13. Here's the big idea for this morning. When we focus on Jesus, everything about us is changing to become God's masterpiece. Everything about us is changing to become God's masterpiece. Our heart, our mind, our body, our life, we're becoming the person, the the being that God created us to be. And it requires us to focus, and it requires us to change. And as that is happening... And as those kingdom values are being displayed, are on display, it has an impact on the world. People see us differently. They want a piece of it. There's something different about us. We respond and handle things differently than as the world does. So we don't run away from the world. We engage the world. We become what we see in Scripture, light, yeast, Flavor. It's the, it's the response of being God's, the hands and feet of Jesus, where we're God's ambassadors for the world to see and know who Jesus is because it's that work that's happening in us and through us. When we focus on Jesus, everything about us is changing to become 
God's masterpiece. Let's pray. God, we trust you to do the work that you need to do in our lives. God, for each one of us here, there's something, there's an area, there's a piece that doesn't look like you, that's keeping us from you. So God, we surrender that to you in knowing fully and freely that you have given us freedom in Christ and that you are making us new each day. So we hand that over to you and ask that you would change us from the inside out. And as we do, we continue to know you more, we trust you more, and we become that masterpiece that you've called us to be. We ask this in your son's name. Amen.